The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me, please, this morning, and let's go to the book of Matthew in chapter number 16. Matthew chapter number 16, our theme for the year is uh, the fact that we are asking the Lord to take us to new heights. We want Him to take us to new heights in our relationship with Him personally, but we also want Him to take our church to new heights. And uh, I, I believe that if we are going to ever uh, reach the potential uh, that uh, the Lord has in wait for our church and all that He could accomplish uh, in us and through us here, not only in this community and uh, throughout this region, but also worldwide through missions, of course, also, the only way we'll reach that potential is if we ever conclude and truly recognize how important the church is. And understand that it, what the biblical constraints are of a church. Now, uh, the, the theme of this new series we're starting this morning is entitled Anatomy of the Church. We're going to be looking at the biblical and, uh, and, and godly structure of what a church really is. And if we don't have a, a proper understanding of what God states the church is then we'll accept anything with the church name attached to it and say, well, that's what that church does, or that is how this church operates. My friends, a church, biblically speaking, a New Testament biblical church is going to only do what Christ laid out for the church to do. It's going to operate only how the scripture has uh, outlined for it to operate as well. And so I'm going to start here in Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to read a few verses here this morning, and uh, then we'll jump into this very first message in this series of the anatomy of the church. Over the next several weeks, we're going to make some observations as to, uh, uh, to this entity and this, uh, this, uh, this um, organization of what we call the church. Today, we'll be trying to discuss uh, some of the definitions of what a biblical New Testament church is. We will look at next week the concept as found in uh, scriptures as to what uh, the church truly is. We'll also in a few weeks look at the character of what a biblical New Testament church is. As we consider these observations, we'll also look at the origins of the church, and uh, we'll see how it began, where it began, and uh, where, all, where, where this thing of the church came from in the first place. We'll then take some time to look at the offices of the church that are found in Scripture, that of the deacons and that of the pastor. Do we actually have a biblical understanding of what a deacon does and is? Do you have an op- a biblical understanding of what my role is as your pastor. I'll just promise you this, the, the Western American culture, especially the social media culture of the world today, has put a lot of things on pastors as roles and responsibilities that God's Word never did. And uh, because of that, church members then put those responsibilities on their pastor and when their pastor doesn't meet those responsibilities, they get mad and upset at their pastor, not because he's missing the mark biblically, but because he's not meeting their expectations Americanly, 
Okay, so we're going to discuss that as well. I'm not mad at anybody today because of that. I'm not, that's not why I say that. I'm just showing you, giving you some heads up of where we're going today over the next several weeks as well. We'll then take some time and look at the ordinances that were given to the church. And uh, tonight we'll observe one of them. One of the ordinances of the local church is the Lord's Supper. And we'll observe that tonight at 5.30. Then, of course, the second one, that of baptism. And we'll look at biblically what those two uh, ordinances are and what they mean for the church. And then we'll close out the series with the operations of the church. We'll look at our service within the church, the structure of how the church is laid out biblically and, and how it ought to operate and, and uh, our soul winning through our church. What, what is the church's responsibility to the scriptures as well? And we're going to look at those things throughout the entirety of this message series. And so this is the very first one. It's the foundational message as well, I believe, of this, of this series. And um, I don't want you to make a conclusion as to the teachings based off of just one or two of the lessons. That'd be like trying to say, I'm going to write a review of a mainstream movie with only watching a minute of it when it's an hour and 30 minutes long. You can't give an op- a, a actual uh, real review of the contents of that movie until you've watched it in its entirety. So I hope that you'll be here for every service uh, over the next several weeks as we discuss these matters about a biblical New Testament church. But let's jump into things for the sake of time this morning. Matthew 16, verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as we start off this series of the anatomy of the church and start this message here this morning, what is the church? What is a definition, a biblical definition of a biblical New Testament church as we begin this systematic study through what the Scripture teaches about it? Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessings. Our Father, thank you so much for our time together in your house. I ask that you'd give me the words to speak as I deliver your message here this morning as we uh, desire to seek what your word teaches about your church. Uh, We understand that you even give illustration in the book of Ephesians about how a husband ought to love his wife as you love the church and you gave yourself for it. Now, God, help us as we examine and consider this entity in which you love, this organization in which you love, this group of people in which you love, that we would love it also, that we would understand it in the same confines and concepts as you understand it, and, uh, Lord, that we would just be dedicated to it to accomplish your, your uh, potential and goals and, and desire in us. Lord, be honored and glorified through our time together here today. And if there happens to be one here this morning that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, while we're not necessarily going to major on your gospel message of your death, burial, and resurrection here in this message this morning, I do pray that they would recognize that you gave yourself for what we call this church, 
and that you died so that others might be able to be saved. And Lord, I ask now that you would draw them close to you if they are without you this morning. Have your will accomplished here and uh, be honored and glorified through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in many ways, when it comes to dealing with a subject like being able to define and understand the, the biblical New Testament church, the greatest barrier to our understanding about what the Bible is actually and genuinely teaching is all of the misinformation that has existed throughout centuries. Now, when people come to believe that error is truth, they will attempt to scripturally justify and protect it, uh, by, in, in, protect what they have come to believe. I'll put it to you this way. There are plenty of different things that different, well, quote-unquote, churches would teach and believe. So if I would teach one thing here and another church would teach another thing there, and both of us would use Scripture verses to try to protect what we teach, and both of us would use Scripture verses to try to uh, prove what we're teaching to be true as well. The thing about it is, is common sense simply tells us that if I teach one thing, another church teaches another, a third church teaches another, a fourth teaches another one, a fifth and sixth and so on and so forth, if there's 20 different churches teaching 20 different things, common sense would simply state that the majority of them have to be incorrect. Because when, Christ, when, when God gave His Word, when God gave His instructions and doctrines, He had one intent behind it. He had one meaning behind it. It's not like, like uh, for instance, um, when a husband and a wife, a, a couple, stand at the marriage altar and they both say, I do. They are saying, I do to one another. Not I do to this person today and this person tomorrow and this person the next. You see where I'm coming from? The I do is specific. The I do is to an individual and when God gave his word, his instructions and his teachings were specific. His, his instructions and his teachings were absolute. So if one teaches one thing but another the other, one has to be right and one has to be wrong. Are we on the same page here? And the reason why I know that to be true is because the Bible is, clearly, is clear in the fact that God is not the author of confusion. So if my interpretation and your interpretation and church over down the road's interpretation and the other person's interpretation and 20 different interpretations could all be correct, that would be kind of confusing, would it not? Well, God's not the author of confusion. So therefore, it cannot come to down to just one simple interpretation. It has to come down to what is the absolute truth of the matter. Again, when error is accepted as truth, uh, it, begins to, it begins to expand. And as error expands, so does competition for credibility. They have to find ways to be able to say, well, my truth is right, where the other truth might be wrong. And everyone's competing for credibility on which is right and which is wrong. And over time, all of the diversity creates a shift in an attitude toward error in general because, it, uh, because of its sheer volume. It seems useless to deal with the error because it is difficult to put a handle on it or even a face to it. 
Now, when we start thinking about things like this, we might say, well, who's to blame? We need to get to that culprit and, and settle this and shake them up a little bit. That's neither here nor there. We could definitely go and blame non-Christian entities and non-Christian groupings and gatherings for their false teaching. That would be easy to do. But what about when that error is in our own backyard? See, I'm, when, when we take out even teachings of what we would not even consider to be Christian today, um, things like uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam, the Mormons, when we, when, we, when we take those types of things, we can easily say, oh yeah, we understand those aren't true, those are falsehoods or, in, in compared to Christianity. But what about what we would call mainstream evangelical churches today? There's, there's plenty of churches in our community that have different teachings. See, here's what I'm getting at this morning is believers are far less able or even willing to identify error and confront it when it's in their own backyard. But this is exactly what Peter addresses in 2 Peter Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, if you want to take your Bibles and look there with me. But 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 2, he warned about false teachers among God's people, who, how he puts it, is this, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them, that many shall follow uh, their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. In other words, what he's saying is it comes to a point where error has become so diverse and error has been so widely accepted that the actual truth is what comes under attack. And when one stands for right and one stands for what is true, all of a sudden that is bigoted. All of a sudden that is uh, unaccepting. And the first century church was no, this was not the case, though. See, at the times when the apostles lived, even underneath the leadership of the generation of descendants after the apostles, error would not be tolerated. I want you to look in your Bibles at, with me in a couple of places. Um, well, we're, for the sake of time, we won't take the time to go there. But if you're taking notes, go, go ahead and jot these places down. Places like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 5. Titus chapter number 3 and verse number 10. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse number 6. Revelation chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. In each and every one of these references that we've just gave here, when error came into the church, the disciples or those who were leadership in the church, they dealt with it immediately. And for those who were not willing to, uh, to correct the errors of their ways, in those cases, in these references I shared this morning, uh, fellow Christians were expected to withdraw fellowship from the guilty party. Because you've heard it put this way, a bad apple will spoil the whole bunch. And so the teaching was error and false doctrine was so devastating that believers were not to even entertain it. See, the guilty were expelled even if they would not right the error of their way. And they were going to be viewed as divisive. The book of Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 through 9 teaches, teaches this. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, 2 John chapter 10, and the book of Jude teach all of these things as well. 
We've been studying on Wednesday nights through the book of Revelation, and just recently we finished chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 2 and 3 holds seven letters to seven churches, and each and every one of those churches in, uh, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation receives some type of a warning. Specifically, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 5, the church of Ephesus is warned that if they do not return to their first love, that God Himself would come and remove that candlestick, remove that church from that community. Because God has a set teaching, God has a set belief system that is His absolute truth, and anything outside of that needs to be corrected and then brought back on course. Are you following with me this morning? Now, the reason why I'm making such a big deal about this is because the institution in which God has chosen to bring His absolute truth to the world at large in the world today is what we call the church. But if we don't have a proper understanding of the role of the church and what makes a church a church, then we're never going to be on the right track to be able to accomplish what God's will is for our church. Therefore, we could state this this morning. A church is known by its doctrinal parameters. A church is known by its doctrinal parameters. Where do we find the doctrinal parameters at? The Word of God. What the Word of God teaches is its, is its foundation. And what the Word of God says about the church is, what, is how it's supposed to operate. And anything outside of those parameters makes that church, quote-unquote, an unbiblical, non-New Testament church. Everybody agree with that statement there with me here this morning? Because this is where we find our truth. It's all, all matters of faith and practice, practice is based off of the Word of God. So if a church is operating outside of, of what the Scripture teaches then it cannot be what the Scripture said a church is. So, this morning I want you to consider with me that when Christians replace the dogma of the New Testament with traditions of human origin, they have effectively removed Christ as the head as well as the cornerstone of the New Testament church. Just like Jesus said in our text verse this morning in Matthew 16, verse number 18, upon this Rock, I will build my church, Jesus' church, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Now listen, if Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, why is our world in such a mess today? Why is there so much wrong? And why does it seem like the church is accomplishing so little? Because I submit to you this morning, this morning, that unfortunately, many churches have fallen outside of the parameters of what would make it a church, outside of the power that God would give them to be able to accomplish what He's promised. Now, this is just the beginning this morning of a long, long series of trying to accomplish what is the biblical definition of a New Testament church. One point here this morning is this. What is the church? The church. What is it? What is the church? Point number one, the church. If you want to uh, notice with me that the Bible says here in verse number 18, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Give me the next slide, please, Brother Matt. Um, the church is uh, what we're talking about here today. What is it? What's the definition of it? What is the biblical definition of it? Well, my friends, the, old, the original English word church, we would have known it as kirk at that time, probably, probably derived ultimately from the Greek word uh, kyrios, uh, which would mean the Lord. It would have the meaning of uh, it would referring to the worshipers of Christ or the Lord, as well of the, as their places of worship. The, the, the structures in which they worshiped in. So we would pronounce it, say, as, as church today. Originally, it would have been more along the form of Kirk, probably ultimately that from the Greek word kurios, uh, German in its origin as well as it, uh, as it progressed along. But nevertheless, it would refer to the worshipers of Christ, those who know Christ. So you and I would be referring to you and I here this morning. But also it had the connotation of the places, the structures in which they worshiped in, i.e. the building in which we are meeting today. That's why we can say, yeah, I'm going to church. It, that, that's why we get that idea as well. As you can see, it is a very appropriate word to use in connection with believers and the worship of their God. The use of this word church in our modern English uh, is not meant to imply any understanding or any defini definition that would be different than that which is found in the New Testament. Are you following me here this morning? Like, when we consider using a word that defines this thing that Jesus said he is building, this thing that Jesus said he is starting, we are not going to use a word that should have any other definition or understanding outside of the way he wanted it to be understood and ha have it to be defined in his day, right? And we're, or I think we're all on the same page with that as well. However, though, over the centuries... Uh, the word has been redefined to mean many things that by definition are not New Testament at all. When, when a person thinks about the church in 2022, the, the average person unfortunately thinks a whole lot differently than what God would have intended it to be, mean in the first century. In its authentic, historical, and biblical context, the word church is very specific and precise. Yet Satan has effectively broadened and diluted its significance as well as its use. J.A. Shackelford, author of, uh, the, the, uh, of, um, of some Baptist history books, he wrote it this way, quote, by some writers, it, the church is made to include the entire body of profess, professed Christians by others, it means the scriptural con spiritual congregation, I'm sorry, or aggregate of the regenerate, including the saints in heaven, the saints on earth, and the saints yet to come. The general use of the word at present justifies both of these definitions, but a scriptural use does not. Nor was the word so used in the time of Christ and his apostles. In fact, the word church is not found in the Greek New Testament nor was it used for some 200 years after the New Testament was written. So if what we know to be church, meaning belonging to the Lord and the places where they worship, wasn't even found in the New Testament, what word was? Well, that's where we find the word here in, in Matthew 16 and verse number 18 that we read church in the original Greek. It was the word ekklesia, ekklesia. So that brings us to the place of how do I define what, what is the ecclesia? 
So Matt, Brother Matt, give me the next slide. And that is where we're going next, understanding ecclesia. Now, in the first century, this word was not an uncommon word. It was actually used in much of secular language. Give me the next slide, if you would, please, Brother Matt. And this is what it meant. Ecclesia meant an assembly or congregation of people gathered together for a common purpose or to accomplish a common goal. The root word carries with it the idea of being called out. So let me give you some examples before we move on. It, is, it would sometimes be used in secular literature to speak of the gathering of a townspeople, all right? So because they had been gathered together, they had been called out. Sometimes it would be used for, to, to define the citizens of a village or a city, in that way, they would be called out maybe to reach a consensus or to make a decision or to choose a direction that would be taken to benefit the whole of the people. But what makes this word important to us is how the Lord used it, how he declared it in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. He says he's going to build an assembly. He's going to build a congregation. He is going to build a gathering of people, his own, and, so, and give them the power so much that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The fact that Jesus said these words, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, makes a difference between what had already existed and what he was going to do. See, when we talk about a ecclesia, a gathering of townspeople, they weren't gathering because the Lord gathered them, and they weren't gathering with the power to fight all of hell. When we talk about an army that was gathered, Ecclesia could have been used by that. It was not because the Lord had gathered it and built it, and it was not to be able to, so that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. But when Jesus used this term, and he was speaking to Peter and his disciples here, he specifically said, I, Jesus, will build my church and the power that is given to them in my church will be so much that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That brings this meaning of this word to a totally different level, a whole new level itself. He said it would be his church. In other words, it would be different to any other assembly commonly known. And uh, because of the uniqueness of its purpose, because of the uniqueness of its parameters, it would be a collection of both Jew and Gentile individuals called out of the world to be formed and integrated into local bodies and assemblies. Jesus would be the spiritual head as well as the doctrinal cornerstone for those bodies. And when spoken of in a corporate sense, it could be considered then an institution. So as we consider understanding the ecclesia, let me say two things about it. Number one, the ecclesia is to assemble. The ecclesia is to assemble. Now, it may be obvious and not even necessary to say this, but sometimes obvious things we miss very plainly. But the definition of a church is that it's a congregation of people that assembles together Assembles together to complete or accomplish a specific purpose. So let me put it to you just plain and simple. An assembly is not an assembly unless it assembles. You got it? 
Now, the reason I say that, and let me preface this and say simply and clearly, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Please don't put words into my mouth, and, and uh, please don't uh, take what I say out of context either. I know there are some here today, and there's some that are not here today. Some that are not here today might not be here because of sickness. Uh, there might be work. There might be reasons outside of their control that would keep them from being here. And that is, that's all fine and dandy and everything else. When There's people that are shut-ins. They physically can't even leave their houses. They can't assemble in a church, and so therefore they can't get there. But, my friends, for those who can, but make the choice not to, means that they have made the choice not to follow what Scripture declares to what makes up a church. See, it's not that we met here in this place, but it's that we met together. And we met together for a specific purpose, to complete a specific action. There are some that are watching online. I know there are folks that watch our services every single week online and regularly. And I praise the Lord that we have technology to do that. But this meeting of watching a service take place online can never replace actually being there in person. So if a person is watching our services and not in the area to where they could come, then my admonishment to that person is to find a church in the area in which they live that they can attend, that they can assemble with, and that they can grow together in the Lord. Because an ecclesia can't be an ecclesia. A church cannot be a church if it doesn't assemble. Let me put it another way. A congregation is not actually a congregation unless it has congregated. So people might sit at home and say, well, yeah, I am a member or I I participate in the worship services there. They might be watching an event take place, but they're not fulfilling the purpose of a church. That's what the Bible is clearly trying to state here. Now, In other words, we would say we must convene. A New Testament church must convene in order to meet the requirements of its own definition. The world today has so much that is unfolding. Facebook has come underneath the umbrella of what they call called meta now, and that's what Zuckerberg has come up with. And they've just unveiled something that they're hoping to really push out called the metaverse. And it's a virtual reality. It literally is a virtual reality life. You put these VR goggles on and you have a virtual reality rendition of yourself that can meet in these virtual rooms and interact with one another. And I've seen churches that have already jumped on board with that and say, well, this is our metaverse campus. Well, my friends, I'm thankful for all of what technology allows us to do and to reach people, but it can't be a substitute for what the church does in gathering together. It just simply can't. In our American culture, we have often found that the English language is always changing and sometimes without a reasonable explanation. A word that meant one thing today, all of a sudden tomorrow means something totally different to some people are like, Where'd that come from? How in the world did that happen? Our culture, we could say it this way, has created a very fluid language. The thing about 
the culture of Jesus' day in the first century and, and the, in which this, the Bible would have been originally written in, that was not the case. It was pretty secure. It was pretty complete, and it didn't change much in its meanings and such. And so where I could step outside and say, man, it's kind of cool out today, and somebody else might say, oh, that event was really cool today and mean totally different things, when a person used the same word in, in those days, in the first generation, it wasn't necessarily going to change the meaning. And so, uh, nevertheless, that means, my friends, that the church cannot be just invisible, but it is visible. So we see the ecclesia must assemble, is to assemble. But no, no, secondly, also, that the ecclesia is also visible. There's a lot of teaching in our cultures today that would state that, well, when the Lord speaks of the church, He's just speaking of every single person that's ever been saved or ever will be saved, and it's just this invisible church, this universal church. My friends, the Bible uses the word church 117 times in the New Testament. 112 of those times, it is used in connection with God in one of three different ways. First, it is overwhelmingly used to refer to specific visible, local congregations. In fact, of the 112 references, 94 times it refers to this local visible assembly. We know that it's a local visible assembly because of where they're located, whether it be by referencing a region. I think of like the book of Galatians, right? The New Testament book of Galatians. Paul is writing to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. Or, for instance, no, we don't, not only do we know that it's literal, specific locations because of the region that it's specifically in, or, but maybe also the city. For instance, the book of First and Second Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. And uh, so it, we know that it's written to a real, literal church there because of, the, of where it's held. In other times, like the, church, well, like the book of Philemon, we spent some time just a few weeks ago studying through some of it. In the book of Philemon, it was written to a church that was meeting in Philemon's house. So these are literal, real people with literal, real congregations. Let me share an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So let's break this down real quick. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He's talking about an, a special offering that this church is supposed to take up. He says, concerning this offering, I want you to know I've also asked the churches of Galatia, a region, group of churches, to participate. And he says, so do ye. So he says, I want you also, this church. He wasn't talking about the church universally, but specific locations that would participate in this. He said, I give an order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week. So not only was there specific literal locations in which they were supposed to collect this offering, but there was a specific time in which they were supposed to collect this offering. So here's the deal. If the church is universal, if the church is invisible, just floating around somewhere out there in space, like nowhere knows where it's at, but, and I'm just kind of doing my thing at my house, having home church, and you're doing your thing at your house, having, your, having home church, and, and we're not together, we're not assembled, we're just doing our own thing. And I do it whenever I feel like it. I might feel like doing it at midnight on Monday. You might feel like, uh, like uh, doing your church in home on, 
on a Saturday at 1 p.m. Another person might feel like doing their church at th- on Thursday at 6 a.m. Paul's instructions were, come to your specific location, literal place, bring an actual offering of tangible money, and bring it on a specific day, the first day of the week. Why, would it, why is it important that he tell what day that they ought to do it? So that they could all gather together, not on their own, but that they could do it together. That's what a church does. It assembles together. Furthermore, our other local churches were referenced, as I mentioned, and, and they were to take and do what the Lord had ex- explained and expected them to do. So sometimes, the, uh, overwhelmingly, the word church or ecclesia is used to refer a specific, visible, local church. There are times in Scripture where it is used as an institutional meaning. For instance, in Matthew 16 and verse number 18, our text today, God said He would build His church. Who was He speaking to directly? First Peter and two disciples as well that were there. Then later on, right before he goes and ascends to heaven in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he gives them what we know as the Great Commission. Who is he speaking to there? His disciples as well. He's then gone into heaven. The disciples have now passed away. They're not alive any longer. So does that mean that the church and the Great Commission have ceased with the ceasing of the disciples? No, because his, his command, his purpose was given to the entirety of the church. Church Mountain Vista Baptist, church whatever in Tucson, church whatever in Phoenix, you see what I'm saying? As an institution. Listen, we think of education, right? That's an institution. But that institution of education takes place in specific places, in classrooms, like first grade, second grade, third grade, elementary school, in, in middle school, like sixth, seventh, or eighth grade, in high school classrooms, uh, you know, ninth, tenth, and eleventh, and twelfth grade, right? In higher education, in college places, and so you know, there's places where pe- where students are gathering, and there's places where students are learning together with a teacher that's teaching them. We would consider it the institution of education, but they are made up of real people, of real schools, of real classrooms, right? And so we find that to be true about the, the church as well. And therefore, the church, in a corporate or institutional sense, cannot be invisible. It cannot be just universal. When speaking of the New Testament churches in a corporate sense, meaning in a general rather than any one particular church, the term of institution is appropriate. We also find the third way is found in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 23. In this passage, the apostle speaks of the future date when there would be a general assembly and the church of the firstborn. In other other words, there will be one day a churching or a gathering together of the church in its entirety in eternity as well. But that day has not come yet. Because what does ecclesia mean? A gathering, an assembly. So a church, if I'm here and another church is over in another country, in another state, in another region, we can't all be church. We're part of churches institutionally. We're all the same until we are gathered together as one in heaven. Following with me here this morning? I hope and pray. Now, we're done here this morning. I I hope and pray, though, that if there's anything, you get a sense of how important 
definitions of words really are. Because words are how we communicate. And if my definition of the word I use is different from your definition of the word you heard, we're never going to be on the same page. You want to know why we're not seeing the power We're not seeing the accomplishments. We're not seeing the ability through our churches like Jesus promised, like the gates of hell not prevailing against it, is because we have made our own definition of what makes a church. We have divorced it from what God himself said the church is, and we are acting then in our own power instead of his. My friends, the church is to assemble. The church is is visible. And those things are, those terms are important for us to understand as the foundation as we move forward. Could you imagine giving your life for something that never, never came to be? Could you imagine giving your life for something that is invisible? But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life for the institution which we know as the church. But that institution is made up of individual, local, local churches, local assemblies. If we're ever going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, we first got to assemble. See, the reason for assembling is so that we can be gathered together, rallied around the same common cause, and equipped to be able to... That's later on in these series of messages. But we'll never be equipped to accomplish what He wants us to do until we get the basics under wrap first. That's why church is important. That's why attending church is important. Oh, I, I, I go to church. Uh, how often? I don't know. Once every two months. We're not, we're not assembling a, a, enough at that time. We're not accomplishing what God... I hope you're getting what I'm, what I'm trying to lay down here this morning. And what I'm trying to lay down is what a scriptural, biblical understanding of what church really is. First and foremost, it's, it's got to assemble. And it's, it is visible. It's not just some myster, mis, uh, mysterious entity out there. It is locales in which we are all accomplishing and working together to, uh, to work to accomplish the work of God. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed here this morning? Again, this is just the foundation. This is just the beginning. I pray that, uh, that you will... Ask the Lord to speak to your heart through, the, uh, through what is being spoken and through what is being delivered, that he would help you to see the biblical understanding of what he meant the church to be, uh, and that before you write it off and say, well, that was, uh, you know, that was interesting, but not really life-changing or anything like that, well, let me consider, let's consider it this way. Would you try to write a real review about a movie that's an hour and a half long after only watching two seconds of it? Um, you know, three, three minutes of it. You could try, but that review wouldn't be an accurate description of it. So my prayer is that you would not come to your own conclusions just yet, but that you'd stick through the rest of these messages and the rest of this series and let the Lord speak to your heart through His Word to see the importance of why He chose the church to accomplish His work still left on this earth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed here this morning, I want to ask just a simple question. How many here would say, Pastor, I know for sure I'm saved and that heaven is my future home. Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. Could I just rejoice with you? Slip your hand up and write back down as a testimony to that end. Yeah, Pastor, I know I'm saved. I know that Christ is my Savior. Hands all across the auditorium. I praise the Lord for that. 
Now, would there be anyone here this morning? I know we didn't really focus on the fact that, you know, Jesus died and rose again and the gospel message as much as we might have in the past, but he did all of that. And as a result, we're gathered today. We, he, did, he, he died and he rose again and he did it for you, my friends. He did it because he loves you. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It was out of his love that he gave his son so that you might be able to live. Jesus himself said in the book of John that he came to give life and life more abundant. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, could I just pray for you this morning? And if that's you and you say, Preacher, I do not know that I'm saved. I don't know that heaven's my home. Could I just pray for you? Slip your hand up and write back down if that's you here this morning. Anybody like that? Then one last question. How many here would say, Pastor, as we begin this series and as we strive to Consider what the Lord has taught about what makes a biblical New Testament church. Pastor, pray with me, and I'm praying with you, that our hearts would just be in tune with the Word of God, with His Spirit, and that I would be open to receiving what the Lord has for me to learn about His church. That I would be open to change my ideas of what I wanted in a church to being what God expects in a church. That I, would remove my, that I would remove my wants out of the equation and instead only desire the church to be what God desires it to be. Pastor, please pray with me as we continue through this series that the Lord would work in my heart in that way. Could I pray with you if that's your heart's desire? Lift your hands up right back down. Hands all across this auditorium. I pray that over the next several messages that the Lord would just do just that that he'd speak to our hearts, that he would help us to understand his concept of what a church is and help us to grow in our understanding of it to accomplish his work and will. I'm going to pray, and when I'm done praying, the piano is going to begin to play just for a few stanzas. If you'd like to come to the altar here this morning and lift up your heart in prayer and asking the Lord to help you to get a proper grasp and understanding about his concept of the church, or maybe right there in your seat if you're unable to kneel at the front, but you just lift up your heart as you've testified just a moment ago with an uplifted hand that you want the Lord to speak through you through the remainder of this series. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness. And Lord, I ask that you just bless our time, just to bless uh, the time in, our, in your word, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he could do. And uh, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to, to be a biblical New Testament church and accomplish your work and have your power on us. And Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As the